This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. This week marks three years since the first COVID case was confirmed in the U.S. And tomorrow marks three years since the first case in Chicago. We've come a long way since the fear and uncertainty that many of us felt during those early days. And we've got several pandemic updates to share with you today. Joining us now to talk COVID and some new research on sleep and our health is Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease expert with Dooley Health and Care. Welcome back to Reset. Hey, Sasha. So, Doctor, three years ago, wow, it feels like so much longer since that first COVID case. I wonder where you were when you heard of that first case showing up in our area. Yeah, I remember it well. Um, We were keeping an eye on things, you know, starting to hear murmurs of what was going on in China at the end of December. And, you know, the talk was among people in the area who were following these trends was, as soon as we start getting cases in the U.S., we're really going to have to come together and have a game plan. And hearing of the first case in the U.S., I believe it was January 20th or 21st, we convened immediately to start talking about game plans should we have cases in the Chicagoland area. And it was almost Almost instantaneous that we were getting updates that here they were right in our backyard. Mm. And by the time we got into late February, early March, we started getting cases in, in nearly all of the collar counties. And it was, you know, hitting the ground running with some of the most unbelievable things we've ever seen in healthcare. So you weren't too caught off guard. You were already preparing for it, for it to hit your practice even. Yeah, so fortunately, we were pretty well set up at Dooley Health and Care with the idea of having an infection control task force. We had established this for Zika, for measles outbreaks, even for Ebola to have sort of a game plan for when and if um, we started having infiltrations of, you know, endemic or pandemic diseases in our community and our uh, clinical sites. So it was convening sort of an already existing committee and then just blossoming from there into a multifaceted approach with many leaders throughout our organization, certainly um, weighing in and being contributors to this entire response. The director of the uh, Illinois Department of Public Health, Dr. Samir Vora, has a a Sun-Times op-ed that's out today, and it's called Lessons from the COVID Pandemic Can Make Illinois Healthier Than Ever. He touches on how COVID highlighted uh, existing health inequities. Do you feel that now we're, we are better prepared to deal with those inequities, doctor, after what we've been through in the last three years? I certainly hope we are. There's a lot of hope that comes as well from young doctors and nurses coming out of training who have spent nearly the entirety of their advanced medical education during a pandemic. And they have been very instrumental in helping those most underserved in our communities. And because of that, as they are now rounding out their medical school careers and their nursing school careers and entering into practice, they are very cognizant of some of these disparities. And I can only hope this renewed energy and renewed interest and renewed uh, identification of those most at need is going to lead to a better approach strategically moving forward when we have things like this happen. So the outreach is there and we continue to serve all on an equal stage. Dr. Vora also talks about misinformation and its effect on public health. How do you deal with misinformation and, and patients who are questioning you due to misinformation? 
It isn't easy. And I think that you have to talk to the patients about where that fear or where that misinformation is coming from. Uh, approaching a patient simply telling them they are wrong uh, is not going to get us to a better place. Asking them where they may have heard that information and then kind of parsing it uh, apart and, and finding out exactly where the fear comes from and you know what they need from me in order to better clarify what they've read or what they've heard from friends. Over the years, I have had patients that feel very much at ease once things are clarified and gone from being very skeptical to very accepting mm -hmm. of treatments and vaccines. And I've had folks that are very uh, accepted a hard line of not, not changing their minds about this approach. And we have to sort of continue our outreach towards those that are willing to listen. Would you say it's still a problem? Misinformation? It still is. It still is. I, I still uh, almost every day see people that have not received a single dose of vaccine, um, individuals that are still asking about uh, COVID treatments that have been proven multiple times to not be effective and be potentially harmful. So we do still run into this misinformation all the time uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Fortunately, the majority of folks, I mean, we have 220 million Americans that have received at least some doses of COVID vaccine. That's that's astronomical. That's better than any public health initiative that, that I've ever seen in my lifetime, for sure. So the majority is on the right side of science, and we just need to keep focusing on that. Looking at the, the current state of things, what are the numbers looking like in Chicago today, or in the area, I should say? Yeah, we did. We did see that uptick that we expected after the holidays. Um, you know, we approached a positivity rate that was in that nine to ten percent range, which we hadn't seen since late this summer. So that's kind of on par with the trends that we were expecting, but not fortunately experiencing any hospitals being overwhelmed with admissions. Um, you know, we are still seeing. 70 some counties in the state that are out of low risk they're in either medium or high risk areas but we have not had to move into high risk in chicago which has been great um, so folks know what they need to do to stay safe there is an uptick in cases but by and large people are um, you know not forcing this trend uh, over into that high uh, risk category it's still possible but i think that you know, the fall or the uh, winter holidays being behind us, we're, we're moving in the right direction here. Some new reporting that's out today from NPR suggests that we could be getting closer to a, a single shot for COVID um, that we would, you know, just get once a year, like a flu shot. What do you think about that? So, yeah, I'm excited about this possibility. There's a, there's a lot that goes into this. It might not be the best, most universal approach, but we have reached a point where we have definite vaccine fatigue. There are people that were very, very good about getting their initial series of vaccines and maybe even a first booster or two, but then we hit the bivalent boosters and even those that were willing to roll up their sleeves are like, enough is enough. And, you know, because of that, having a thought process that this might just be an annual thing that we can do as responsible citizens might lead to more people accepting a vaccine routine. We've essentially lost track of what being up to date on vaccines is. How right. many should we have had at this point? Is it two? Is it four? Is it six? People that are immunocompromised may have had five, six, or seven doses of vaccine at this point. 
We've been waiting for and hoping for some seasonality with COVID. If this was something that was as predictably seasonal as influenza, then yes, we go to the drawing board in the spring, predict where the trends are going to be, make a vaccine ready for the fall that will go ahead and protect against what is most likely to be going around, and we hope it's a good match, and that's the routine we can fall in. But over these last three years, we've seen surges of this virus in non-fall seasons and we've seen it during the summer we've seen it during the spring so without that predictable seasonality it makes it more challenging to make a seasonal vaccine we're getting closer i hope that there's more seasonality to covid moving forward but establishing a schedule of just requiring a booster once a year for the majority of folks might be exactly where this needs to go this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we are talking with infectious disease expert Dr. Mia Teramina. She's been reflecting on three years of COVID-19. And now we're going to turn to a recent UChicago study. This is on the importance of sleep for your, your health. Uh, what are the big takeaways, Dr. Teramina, of this report? You know, it's interesting how sleep has become uh, something that's on the forefront once again, as we have individuals that experience long COVID symptoms, and many of those can come with a dis- being disturbed sleep and not sleeping well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have we have the knowledge, we have so much knowledge about sleep, and yet there's so much we don't know. We need to sleep. We have to have good sleep hygiene. It impacts multiple other systems in our body, our heart, our lungs, our uh, diabetes, anything that we have as a chronic illness. This is why if you are having restless sleep, if, if you're experiencing drowsiness during the day or falling asleep easily during the day, if you have headaches, this is, you know, we have specialists that can assess for this. We can have sleep studies done. You may have sleep apnea. You may have a condition that is treatable and can get you to a place of more restful sleep that will have a positive impact on everything from your mental health to your physical health. So it's very important that we spend some time acknowledging how important it is to have appropriate sleep hygiene. Yeah, I'm not sleeping so well, Doc. And so as you as you were speaking there, I was thinking, oh my gosh, she's talking to me. We've had a lot of sleepless nights over the over the last three years. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'd say that going through residency and fellowship was was good preparation for a lot of late nights. But the reality is, is trying to get to sleep around the same time each evening and trying to wake up around the same time each morning. And for most adults, looking at that six to eight hour window of continuous sleep is going to be so beneficial for all of us. Those who, you know, pride themselves on getting by with just four or five hours of sleep a night, it does catch up. Uh, It does catch up on the rest of our body systems. We need that restorative and reparative sleep in order to live our best physical, mental, and emotional lives. How much sleep did you get last night? I got about four and a half hours. Yeah, I I would put it at around six tops. (laughs) Six tops. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, I go between going to bed super early but then I'll wake up at like 1, 2, 2 a.m. and then that's it. I can't go back. Um, or I'll sort of go to bed late and then I'm up promptly at 5. And so it's, you know, there's no win there. Uh, but 7 to 8 hours, I think, sounds really good. But I just feel like it, it's really hard to achieve and might be unrealistic for some of us in our lifestyles and so forth. So so for folks who are listening now, doctor, who Maybe they can't schedule seven to eight hours of sleep because of multiple jobs or just life. What do you recommend they do? 
So one thing is you can catch up. So if you've been sleepless the entire week and had a really busy week at work, but maybe have the benefit of the weekend off, or even if you work non-traditional hours and have a day or two off midweek, sleep in, get some catch up, get some, uh, an extra hour or two of sleep if you can. Mm -hmm. Don't look at that day off as, you know, a day to hit the ground running bright and early. If you can be in that restful state and sleep in and treat yourself to that extra sleep, that does help. Also, you know, the obvious things, cutting back on caffeine, especially late in the day, getting those devices and electronics out of our beds, away from our bedside, so that it's not our tendency to wake up at one o'clock in the morning and start scrolling through nonsense on the internet. Oh, but it's so hard, Dr. Taramina. (laughs) It is. It is, but it keeps our brains stimulated. And then we start a thought process and we fall down a a rabbit hole of looking at things (laughs) and reading topics uh, in the middle of the night. I've I've even gotten up at 3 a.m. and just started paying bills. Like I'll just get so (laughs) productive because I'm like, okay, it's not happening. I'm not going to sleep. Let me get things done. So I I mean, I think that that's probably the most critical thing for those people that are just not getting by with a lot of sleep is to is to find that opportunity to catch up a little bit. Um, I'm not opposed to napping either. I don't want people napping for four hours in the middle of the day and then that disrupts their sleep. But to the extent that you can take that shorter nap and, and I think NASA has even looked into, you know, the optimal amount of time that you can nap during a day to make it be a productive restoration without going through a full REM cycle and throwing off your sleep later in the day. I think that that's an uh, an option for folks as well. But if you find that your uh, daytime napping is leading to being up all night, then we have to reset that clock by trying for a bedtime that's around the same each night and not getting up out of bed until around the same time each morning. That pattern is what's going to be the most helpful. That was Dr. Mia Taramina, infectious disease expert with Dooley Health and Care. Thank you so much, Doc. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks, you too.